This evening's talk is titled Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of No Self. Over a period of years during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many, many times. In these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, and back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. At times I was kind of amazed, fascinated, intrigued by this dream. And if I thought about it very much, I would feel quite perplexed. But mostly I was just quite interested. Interested enough, in fact, that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the distinct feeling of touching a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed ever since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, every phenomena that arises within our body-mind continuum. And the second universal characteristic being that all things, all phenomena, being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure, nothing being sustaining in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects, and the world of all of our inner experiences of body, and mind. None of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness, but rather the dukkha of the round and round and round of pleasant, unpleasant, seemingly good, bad, liking, disliking. The dukkha of the rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things. 
all phenomena, being of the nature to change and to pass away, thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing sustaining satisfaction. This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all, the reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe overt sense of fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth, is so basic, so simple, and that even with just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of no self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it, within the context of our immediate body, bodily and mental experience, and within the imagined context, context of the possible future, or even within the context of the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished beliefs, hopes, and fears, to let go of the attachment to all of our cherished, clung to self-identities. It's important to recognize that in letting go of our attachment, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment, not even for a second. Our so-called self is in constant flux. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to, no thing, nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings 
and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality, that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, not a teacher of philosophy, but a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at our self and to look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see our self more accurately, which translates as beginning to see through our self by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all all the layers of meaning that we invest with things when we're attached, when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple, maybe not so easy, but very simple. We're sitting. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat, just heat. Pressure, just pressure. Red or yellow, just red or yellow. Rising and falling, merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking, merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely or are just themselves. There are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, there's no real suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And this is a quote that I uh, shared with you a, a week ago, or some time ago anyway, during this month, by the Chinese sage Nanshin, 
which I want to repeat this evening. By not accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of self without investing an interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? We think in terms of, for instance, my foot or my arm, my nose, my hair, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we see, how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The mirror of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror and seeing the truth of myself, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self that, and that things belong to a self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe, experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, And what's being observed, what's being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat. Merely an ache in the chest or a tingling movement through the body. Merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two, just this present moment being known just as it is. 
Only by training ourselves again and again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, sensations, feelings, states of mind as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thought, habit, all the egoistic inclinations be broken up, reduced, let go of, and then finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, come to know self, to know self. (laughs) And then, finally, for a moment, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine based in fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. Stephen Mitchell's version of the Narcissus story offers a very potent metaphor in this direction, and I'd like to share it with you. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, Gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load, a heavy burden to carry our self around our body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes and fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, beliefs that they're mine, me, myself. The burden or the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership and identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. 
can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential of peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life, living much more freshly and more fully right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice, our teacher. Right here on retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. For instance, as we lift a cup, and fill it with water as we sit and notice, as we receive and simply know, for instance, the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath. This is a, a poem by the Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls it, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge of and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness that each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the belly or the rumbling sensation therein? Is the in-breath, the sensation of the in-breath, me? Am I the foot? Do I reside in the cool, fluid vibration of the foot moving through space or in the sensation 
beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot, not the sensation in the breath, but certainly my mind or my consciousness, that's me. That's definitely me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that we, most of us, cling to quite tenaciously and often unwittingly, is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect. Let go of interpreting what you're hearing with the intellect. And just simply open and receive the words, just simply and directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body? Or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or the nature of anything? Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment. It too is dependent on clinging, dependent on the feeling of pleasant and unpleasant that arises because of contact through one of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thought. Dependent on the mental constructs and labels that arise in the conscious mind through contact. The arising of our individual consciousness is totally dependent on all this. And thus, it itself is not permanent, not constant, not steady, not dependable, not self. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. 
There's consciousness only in relationship to some object, no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional and it itself being one of the arising conditions that can lead to the condition of suffering. I'd like to uh, share with you the short sutta on the characteristic of not-self that the Buddha gave to the group of five, the five bhikkhus who he had practiced with uh, before he became enlightened. And this is the sutta. Bhikkhus, material form is not self. For if bhikkhus, material form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it a form as this, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is not self, it leads to affliction. Because it is not possible to have it a form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. Feeling is not self. And he goes through this same uh, logic with each, uh, each thing. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Volitional formations, meaning thoughts, are not self. Consciousness is not self. For if bhikkhu's consciousness were self, this consciousness would, lead, would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is not self, consciousness leads to affliction. And it is not possible to have it of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, bhikkhus? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. Is feeling permanent or impermanent? And again, he goes through each. Is perception permanent or impermanent? Are volitional formations or thoughts permanent or impermanent? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This this I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it really is, with correct understanding. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And then again, he goes through the feeling, perception, thoughts, volitional formations. 
any consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. All consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct understanding. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Seeing thus a bhikkhu, a wise, noble disciple, experiences dispassion towards material form, dispassion towards feeling, dispassion towards perception, dispassion toward volitional formations, thoughts, dispassion towards consciousness. Becoming dispassionate, her or his lust fades away. With the fading of lust, her or his heart is liberated. With the heart liberated, there comes the knowledge. It's liberated, and she or he understands. Exhausted is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more of this to come. And it said that when he offered this sutta to the uh, group of five, as it's called, by the end of it, or somewhere along in the way of it, they were all liberated. And so then there were six arahants in the world. As awakening beings, can we be begin to directly experience and know the changing, interdependent nature of all things. Begin to see in one Dhamma, in one truth, all truths, all Dhammas. Can we begin to see in all Dhammas the one Dhamma? See See the one in the many, the many in the one. In other words, begin to see in the one the endless immeasurable flow, the process of life unfolding, or in the overall ongoing immeasurable flow, see the arising and passing away in this flow. Can we begin to see the one, the one truth? Again, the mirror of Dhamma. And this is from an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, no absolute life. and a wonderfully simple poem by Jim Harrison. 
I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move towards the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allowing a felt sense to permeate in relation to the following descriptive words. And beginning with your eyes closed, visualizing or sensing on some level an enormous jeweled net, a net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net. While at the same time, its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now let the image or the felt sense just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in its many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of no self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom 
of no self that compassion springs from. One of the two wings, we could say, with which we fly free. The awakened act only from the heart of compassion because of the pervasive clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you, no separate me. And from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Just relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, in this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, just simply let the mind rest in the openness of the sky. Let the heart rest in the space, not fixing on any cloud, but just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all of the clouds disappear, simply allow the mind to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And now just let the image fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the mind open wide, 
letting the awareness be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself, not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself, just knowing the knowing. Who knows? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing. As we learn to step back, so to say, and face the looking glass with a willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence of all things that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there is no thing that satisfies no thing that brings pleasure, joy, ease in an ongoing, sustained way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to make us truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, looking in the mirror, going back and back into this mirror of ourself. Awareness becomes more and more open and empty and spacious, back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. Instead of finding something solid, Static, separate, some solid I, me, some fixed eternal entity. We get back to this vastness, this bright spaciousness of mind, spaciousness of being. In this there's no I and no other, no duality. In this emptiness, in this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of the deepest ease of well-being. As long as we're in the realm of I, me, and mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality, and it creates huge problems 
the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I had a friend, um, and this is a true story, (laughs) I had a friend who in his 40s was suffering from this core loneliness. And so he decided to see a therapist for the first time in his life. And with advice from um, various friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called for his appointment, he was told by the secretary that it might be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes, all different colors. And he set them down uh, in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and he got another load of baggage of all different sizes and colors and piled them on top of the first load. He said that he told me that he had to go around collecting baggage from various friends and family members because he didn't have enough of his own baggage. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he took all of the baggage in and piled it up on the floor in front of him between him and the therapist. At some point during this first therapy session, uh, the therapist in her wisdom asked my friend to open up all of the baggage. And so he did. And there wasn't anything inside. And that was profound for him. When we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch this simple reality, there can at first be a kind of poignancy and then maybe a sense of measureless beauty being entered into. And often there's a feeling of great relief like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize the load and its nature and just simply set it down. I'd like to share uh, 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 some parts of... um, a writing piece by uh, Ursula Le Guin. This is her version, or a version of a portion of the Adam and Eve story. And she calls it, She Unnames Them. Most of them accepted namelessness with the perfect indifference with, with which they had so long accepted and ignored their names. Whales and dolphins, seals and sea otters, consented with particular grace and readiness, sliding into anonymity, 
as into their element. Cattle, sheep, swine, asses, mules, and goats, along with chickens, geese, and turkeys, all agreed enthusiastically to give their names back to the people to whom, as they put it, they belonged. A couple of problems did come up with pets. The cats, of course, steadfastly denied ever having had any name other than those given unspoken, ineffable personal names. Self-given, unspokable, ineffable personal names. It was with the dogs and with some parrots, lovebirds, raven, ravens, and minas that the trouble arose. These verbally talented individuals insisted that their names were important to them and flatly refused to part with them. But as soon as they understood that the issue was precisely one of individual choice and that anybody who wanted to be called Rover or Fufu or Polly or even Birdie in the personal sense was perfectly free to do so. Not one of them had the least objection to parting with their generic names, such as poodle, parrot, dog, or bird. The insects parted with their names in vast clouds and swarms of ephemeral syllables, buzzing and stinging and humming and flitting and crawling and tunneling away. As for the fish of the sea, their names disappeared from them in silence throughout the oceans like faint, dark blurs of cuttlefish, ink, and drifted off on the currents without a trace. None were left now to unname, and yet how close I felt to them when I saw them swim or fly or trot or crawl across my way or over my skin or stalk me in the night or go along beside me for a while in the day. They seemed far closer than when their names had stood between myself and them like a clear barrier, so close that my fear of them and their fear of me became one same fear. And the attraction that many of us felt, the desire to smell one another's smells, feel or rub or caress one another's scales or skin or feathers or fur, taste one another's blood or flesh, keep one another warm, that attraction was now all one with the rest, and the hunter could not be felt from the hunted, nor the eater from the food. This was more or less the effect I had been after. It was somewhat more powerful than I had anticipated, but I could not now in all conscience make an exception for myself. I resolutely put anxiety away, went to Adam, and said, you and your father lent me this. Gave it to me, actually. It's been really useful, but it doesn't exactly fit very well lately. But thanks very much. It's really been very useful. It's hard to give back a gift without sounding peevish or ungrateful, and I didn't want to leave him with that impression of me. He wasn't paying much attention as it happened and only said, put it down over there, okay, and went on with what he was doing. At last I said, well, goodbye, dear. I hope the garden key turns up. He was fitting parts together and said without looking around, okay, fine, dear, when's dinner? I'm not sure, I said. I'm, I'm going now. I'm going with the, with the... I hesitated and finally said, with them, you know, and went on out. 
In fact, I had only just then realized how hard it would have been to explain myself. I could not chatter away as I used to do, taking it all for granted. My words now must be as slow, as new, as single, as tentative as the steps I took going down the path away from the house, between the dark-branched, tall dancers, motionless against the winter shining. Can we unname things? Can we end our long-standing sense of solidity and separateness by coming so close through touching experience with the great and potentially impeccable intimacy of mindful awareness so as to see and to know and to live the truth? the truth that there is no separate, solid anything, no self. And this is from Kalu Rinpoche. We live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. The liberating wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the emptiness, the empty essence, the not-self nature of all things and the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things. This being the relative aspect of understanding no self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. To truly fly free, we need both wings. And I'd like to close this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. This is from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you, in the seen, only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here. 
you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing here, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly together for a moment. Thank you.